you turn to uh, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, chapter 14. Uh, and we're going to read uh, verse 14 through to 21. Um, now, a few weeks ago, if you remember, we had a look at the sinking of the disciple, didn't we? Peter walking on the water. And, uh, you know, just to tie it up, the walking on the water incident happened immediately after the thing that we're going to look at today. All right, so just to give you an idea of the chronology of events. So, um, Matthew 14, and uh, we'll start reading from verse 14 down to verse 21. And uh, it, it says, um, as he went ashore, oh, that's Jesus, as he went ashore, he saw a great throng, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a lonely place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. So let's, let's just do this sort of verse by verse. Uh, this is Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14 and starting at verse 14. Oh. <laughs> Matthew chapter 14 and verse 14. We'll go through it verse by verse, all right. Um, See here, as Jesus went ashore, he saw a great thong, throng and had compassion on them and healed their sick. Uh, we saw compassion in the spiritual gift series, didn't we? I'm not going to go greatly into it now, but whenever in the Bible you get the word compassion, remember the Greek word is the word for guts, isn't it? And uh, it's, it, it sort of speaks of that, that being moved to the depths of your being which forces you to act to meet the need. And, uh, and, of course, this, this is Jesus all over. This is God all over. The fact that whenever he sees need, whenever he sees suffering, he feels it to the depths of his being, and he moves in order to put the need right. And in verse 15 we've got, When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a lonely place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Now, these crowds have been with Jesus most of the day, and now it's getting on into evening, and uh, they were probably a, a bit of a way from somewhere. There wasn't like a chippy, you know, just the other side of a rock somewhere. And, uh, and the crowd are hungry, which is quite naturally. And, uh, and so really, what the disciples are saying, look, Jesus, here you are healing their sick. That's great. But there, there's a need here, Lord, that that, that lot, the crowd, are going to have to sort out for themselves. So, so send them away so they can buy food. They're hungry, all right, they're hungry, but they're going to have to sort this one out for themselves, Lord. So send them away so they can buy food. And <coughs> there's always, isn't there, this great tendency, whenever we're presented with need, to kind of uh, send people away, you know, sort of well, sort it out yourself. And 
you know, sort of like, you know, if only this problem will go away, everything will be all right. And here was a hungry crowd. The disciples couldn't do anything about it, even though Jesus was there. So when you've got a problem that you don't know the answer to, the best thing to do is send them away, isn't it? You know, get rid of the problem. And this is the immediate kind of the reaction of the disciples. Lord, they're going to have to sort this one out for themselves. But look what Jesus says. Jesus said, they need not go away. You give the people something to eat. So the disciples have said, Lord, send them away because they've got to go and get food. They've got to sort this out on their own for themselves. But Jesus here tells the disciples, you feed them. You take care of it. Here's a need that the disciples want to send away. And Jesus said, oh, no, 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 no. You take care of it. Now then, look what they say in verse 17. They say to him, we've only five loaves here and two fish. And you can see them looking at him in absolute amazement. Lord, what are you going on about? We've got five loaves and two fish. What can we do about it? Now, obviously, it is good to recognise a limitation, <laughs> all right? <laughs> I mean, you know, five loaves, two fish. It's good to know your limitations. I, you know, I mean, we're never encouraged in the Bible to irresponsibly overstretch ourselves or, or to start doing things that are ridiculous. But there were two things here that they're not taking into account, all right? <coughs> Jesus has said, you feed them. And the disciples are saying, what are you going on about? We've only got five loaves and two fish. Sensible answer. But there were two things they weren't taking into account. The first thing they didn't take into account here is that Jesus was with them. And the second thing they didn't take into account is that Jesus had told them there was no need for the people to go away in order for them to be fed. So they've got the presence of Jesus and they've got a promise here and they weren't taking that into account. Now obviously, whereas in the natural, the idea of sending the crowds away, all 5,000 plus of them to feed themselves, in the natural, that was just sensible. And that is what normally you and I would do in any given situation, <laughs> all right. But the thing here is that Jesus had issued them instructions to the contrary. And therefore, because Jesus had told them, no, don't send them away, you feed them, then even though the disciples only have five loaves and two fishes, feeding the crowd of 5,000 plus with five loaves and two fishes, that became the sensible thing to do, given that Jesus had just told them to do it. So whereas it would have been madness naturally speaking, the fact that Jesus had told them to do it made it the sensible thing to do. But obviously they're balking at it, kind of, you know, Lord, what are you going on about? Okay, let's read verse 18. And he said, bring them here to me. Jesus is saying, right, you've got five loaves, two fish, that's what you've got, bring it here, let's have it, all right? And the point is that when Jesus uses all that you've got, it's going to be enough if it's Jesus who's using it. If we use all that we've got, it's not going to be enough. But when Jesus gets his hands on all that you've got, when Jesus gets his hands on it, then it will be enough. And the point I want to home in on here, the situation is the crowds are hungry. Disciples saying, send them away, Lord, they're hungry. Jesus saying, don't send them away, you feed them. Disciples saying, 
We can't, Lord, we've only got five loaves and two fishes. That's it. It's not enough. Well, Jesus said, it's going to be enough. Bring it here to me. We're seeing that when Jesus gets his hands on what you've got, even though it's not enough, he will make it enough. Now, I want to home in on the fact that here, the fact that the disciples, that Jesus was brought the five loaves and the two fish. Okay. The fact that they surrendered what they had to the Lord acts as a symbol, an outward symbol of the fact that we must actually surrender ourselves. <coughs> now, obviously, if you surrender yourself, everything you've got comes with it. But it's possible to surrender things that you've got without surrendering yourself. That's no good. But the point here, the act of surrendering what little they had to Jesus was an outward symbol of the fact that we, as disciples, must surrender ourselves fully. And the reason for that, that we're going to see, is quite simply this. We, even as disciples of Jesus, even as people who are born again and filled with the Spirit, we are not enough to meet the needs that Jesus wants to meet through us. We are not enough. But what we're seeing is that when Jesus gets his hands on it, what isn't enough always becomes enough. And what we're going to be seeing here tonight is how it is that we can actually become enough to meet the needs that Jesus wants to meet through us. We must surrender ourselves to him. And the question we must answer, therefore, is this. What does God do with that which is surrendered to him in order for it to become enough for the task? I'll say it again. What does God do with that which is surrendered to him in order for it to become enough for the task. Now we'll read verse 19 to 21. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and blessed, and broke, and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. That which was not enough, definitely wasn't enough, five loaves, two fish. Definitely not enough. Once Jesus got his hands on it, it became more than enough. So that after five thousand people plus were fed, there was still loads and loads of food left over. It didn't just become enough, it became more than enough, alright. So what we've got here, Jesus takes the bread and the fishes, he gets his hands on it, it's surrendered to him. It wasn't enough, but he made it enough. Now what was it that Jesus did to make it enough? Right, okay, it was this. He did four things with it. He took it, he blessed it, he broke it, and only then did he give it. Now, can you see that order? Jesus took it, then we read that he blessed it, then he read, then we read that he broke it, and then that he gave it. Now, the bread and the fish here, the loaves and the fishes here, 
are representing the fact that by surrendering all that we have to Jesus, what we're talking about is surrendering ourselves. So therefore, our life as disciples, if we are going to live the full and complete life of following Jesus, is going to be that God takes us, then that he blesses us, then that he breaks us, and then that he gives us. Now, I want you to go to Matthew 26 now, and we'll start really following this through. Now, this is the Last Supper Jesus is having with the disciples. Matthew 26, and find verse 26. <coughs> now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples. Now, can you see exactly the same thing there? And he said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, I'm saying that those loaves and the fish represent us. Here, Jesus is taking bread and he's saying this represents him. And that what I want to show you, first of all, is that this thing about God taking, blessing, breaking and giving, this even had to happen to Jesus himself. We as disciples follow the path he took. Let's see the path that he took. Go to John 6. This was Jesus taking the bread, blessing it, breaking it and giving it, saying, take, eat, this is my body. Now, if you go to John chapter 6, now then, verses 1 to 14 is John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. So it's the same context. But go into verse 25, all right, shortly afterwards. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, where did, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labour for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So here, Jesus is saying, look, you're following me now because I worked a miracle and I fed you. And he's saying, look, don't labour for the food that perishes. Now, go down into verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. That's what these people reply. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Now, can you see that? Jesus is saying that he is the bread of life. So at the Last Supper, when he took the bread, blessed it, broke it and gave it and said, take, eat, this is my body, that taking, that blessing, that breaking and that giving represented what he himself was all about in his coming in order to save us. So let's see this order first in the life of Jesus. Now the first thing was that in order to be the saviour of the world, Jesus was 
taken. He was taken. Go to Daniel. Immediately after Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, Ezekiel is easier to find than Daniel, and Daniel follows Ezekiel. Now in chapter 7, and I'm going to read verse 9 and 10, and then 13 to 14. Now this, this, this is sort of visions that Daniel is having. As I looked, thrones were placed, and one that was the Ancient of Days took his seat. His raiment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Now go down to verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting one, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now what we have here is Daniel has a vision of one, the Ancient of Days. And then he sees someone else being called before the Ancient of Days. And this one who is called before the Ancient of Days is one like the Son of Man. And this person who is one like a Son of Man is given a kingdom that shall, which won't ever pass away. Now what's Daniel seeing here? He is seeing the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, being brought before the Father and commissioned for his work as saviour to the world. Can you see that? The Ancient of Days is God the Father, and the one as a son of man is Jesus. And we have a picture here of Jesus being brought before the Father in heaven and commissioned for his work. Now, if you go into John chapter 5, John chapter 5, <coughs> and find verse 30. And look what Jesus says. I can do nothing <clears throat> on my own authority. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now can you see here that from eternity past Jesus was taken by the Father and put in submission to him and his will. Now this Jesus responded to freely. But can you see in the Daniel passage Jesus is being enlisted by the Father for the work of salvation. And here Jesus himself says, I have been sent. I'm not here of my own accord, I'm not here to do my own will, I'm here under authority, I'm here obeying orders. Why? Because Jesus had, as it were, been drafted into the army of salvation. Now can you see, Jesus himself was taken by God the Father 
and only then, because he was taken and submitted to God the Father, was he then able to become the Son of Man and to work through salvation. So there we have God the Father taking Jesus. All right. Now then, secondly, Jesus was blessed. Second stage. He was blessed. Go firstly to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 and verse 42. And uh, this is a prophetic utterance of uh, what God was doing with Jesus. Uh, let's start reading. For, uh, yeah, we'll read verse 41 first. Now, this is when Mary, who is pregnant with Jesus, meets Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist, all right. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leapt in her womb. So John the Baptist, even as, as a fetus, jumps for joy because, of course, the fetus of Jesus has just arrived. I mean, this is a spiritual connection going on here that is beyond us, but it's definitely going on, you know? Wow. Um, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry. Now, when you get in the Bible the combination of someone being filled with the Spirit and then exclaimed, you've got prophecy. All right, you've got proclamation of God's word. At Pentecost, they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in tongues. But the difference between Pentecost and normal gift of tongues today is that they didn't need interpreting. As the disciples were filled with the Spirit and spoke in tongues, all the men, all the women there from all over the then known world heard the gospel preached in their own languages, even though the disciples didn't know what they were saying because they didn't understand the tongues. So here, what we've got, a prophecy coming from Elizabeth to Mary, who is carrying Jesus here as a fetus. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now here is a prophetic blessing proclaimed upon Jesus right at the start of his work. I, he's only recently been conceived as a fetus in Mary's womb. So having been taken, Jesus was blessed. Now what is this a prophetic utterance in regards to? Right, now go over to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 and verse 21. And this is the baptism of Jesus. Now when all the people were baptised, and when Jesus also had been baptised and was praying, the heaven was opened. Now you can't get a better blessing than that than when the heavens open on you, can you? And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form as a dove. And a voice came from heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, with thee I am well pleased. Now, there's a lovely, lovely thing with the Trinity, isn't it? Here's Jesus being baptised. The Holy Spirit comes down on him as a dove and his Father says, This is my beloved Son. Who could doubt the Trinity in the New Testament? It's crazy, isn't it? But you see, here Jesus is receiving the full power and blessing of the Holy Spirit. And it was immediately after Jesus was baptised, immediately after he was filled with his Spirit, that his ministry began. Before Jesus was baptised, no ministry. But now, because he's received the Holy Spirit, been filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has come down upon him, now his ministry of salvation actually begins. So we've seen Jesus has been taken, and now Jesus has been blessed. But the next thing that had to happen, 
Because remember, you haven't got completeness until all these things have happened. The next thing is that Jesus was broken. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Again, reference to, um, this is Paul speaking about the love feast, and he refers back to the Last Supper. We've already seen uh, the account of the Last Supper. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 24. Uh, we'll start reading from verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Now when Paul says, I received from the Lord, he got this personally from Jesus. This wasn't sort of like, you know, that, that he'd had it passed on, that he'd had a chat with Matthew or something, who of course was there. No, Paul had received this directly from Jesus himself. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, there you have it, and when he had given thanks, or another version of that is blessed it in the Greek, he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. So here we have the fact that Jesus was broken. Now, go back into Psalms <coughs> and find first of all Psalm 31 where we're going to see more about what this breaking meant. Psalm chapter, uh, Psalm chapter, uh, Psalm 31 and first of all, we'll read verse 12. Now then, we simply read this. I have passed out of mind like one who is dead. I have become a broken vessel. Now, you might think, well, okay, what's, what's the point of dragging that psalm into it? Because obviously this might be David speaking about one of his own experiences, mightn't it? All right. Well, I'll tell you, let's read a little bit more closely in this psalm. Uh, if I can find the verse that I want. Hang on, yes. Let's, um, whoops, an embarrassing lack of a note here is, uh, give me two minutes. Right, now if you go back into, we'll read verse one, two, three. I think you'll get the point. Uh, into verse 5. In thee, O Lord, do I seek refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In thy righteousness deliver me. Incline thine ear to me speedily. Be thou a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. Yea, thou art my rock and my fortress. For thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net which is hidden from me. For thou art my refuge. Now listen to this. Into thy hand... I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Now, can you see? Far into thy hands I commend my spirit, or commit my spirit. That is what Jesus said on the cross. And what we have here in Psalm 31, although it is genuinely a psalm of David, this is something that David himself prayed in the spirit, nevertheless, it is a prophetic psalm. It is actually the prayer of Jesus on the cross. Can you see that? Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Jesus quoted it on the cross. So this Psalm 31 is the prayer of Jesus on the cross. And we've read in verse 12, I have become like a broken vessel. Now, go over into Psalm 34. Psalm 34. And we'll read from verse 17. 
Right, Psalm 34, 17 to 20. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. All right? Now then, if you go back earlier on in the psalm, and that what you've got here is that in verse 20, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. What's that talking about? When Jesus died on the cross, normally what happened was, when the Romans decided it was time to take, you know, the corpses down, if they weren't dead, they broke their legs. And that final amount of pain killed them. But Jesus died so quickly, he didn't need his legs broken. So again, Psalm 34 is a prophetic psalm referring to the death of Jesus on the cross. And in verse 18, the Lord is near to the broken hearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So that what we see here is that Jesus, he was broken in his body, in the sense that his body was destroyed, he was killed. But also he was broken in his heart. That brokenness went right through everything that Jesus was. So at the heart of the ministry of Jesus, we see here the fact that he was broken. Right, so he was taken, he was blessed, he was broken. But what happened as a result of that? Well, then Jesus was given. Go to John 16. You'll see what I mean. John 16. And this is the teaching of, of Jesus in regards to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now then, John 16, and find verse 7. He says, <coughs> Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the counsellor will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now go down to verse 12. I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I say that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you will see me no more. Again, a little while, and you will see me. Now here what Jesus is saying, look, in a little while you're not going to see me anymore. Because he was going to be ascending into heaven, gone in physical form. But when he says in a little while you will see me, that Greek word there, thurio, it means to be a spectator by looking at something closely. Now what Jesus is saying, and this is a little bit Terminator, I'll be back. But I'll be back in a slightly different way, but you will still see me as surely as if I'd never left you. Alright, now go back into chapter 14. <coughs> and we'll start reading from verse 15. <coughs> If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now go down into verse 21. 
He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now what you've got here is this, the fact that Jesus was given. Before Jesus died on the cross, he was physically one man in one place, and that was all. He limited himself, even though he was God, he limited himself to one human body with all the limitations thrust upon what one man can do, all right. But once he had been broken, once he died on the cross, when he had ascended and the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, what we see there is that Jesus was then no longer restricted to living in one physical body because now he lives in all Christians. Now, let's just sum up where we've come so far. All right. The process of God taking, blessing, breaking and giving Jesus resulted in the lifting of the limitation of him being confined to one place in one human body. Or this process, God takes, he blesses, he breaks and he gives. At the beginning of that process, you always have a limitation. By the end of the process, the limitation has gone. And with Jesus, it was in his physical body, he was one man in one place at one time. But now, having gone through that process, the Holy Spirit having been poured out, Jesus is no longer limited to one human body. He is now living in every believer. He now has countless bodies to live in, which all added together add up to the body of Christ. So, it went from he, himself and him, if you like, to me, myself and I and Jesus. And you manifest that by as many people who are Christians. Can you see? Before the process ended, Jesus was simply he, himself and him. But now, Jesus is me, myself and I and Jesus. Can you see? Everyone who comes to him, he is living in them. So the limitation that Jesus had upon him of being one man in one place at one time has now been lifted. Remember, when we saw the breaking of the loaves and the fishes, what changed was that when Jesus got his hands on them, they weren't enough. They were limited. But when the process of breaking and giving had eventually finished, they were more than enough. They were sufficient to feed thousands. All right. So, what we're seeing is that breaking in the Bible is always talking about the lifting of limitation into a kind of a limitless, you know, sort of possibility of what God can do. Now then, we've seen that this had to happen in Jesus. Now, if the breaking was needed in Jesus, who was sinless, and Jesus was without sin, how much more is that going to be needed in us, as his disciples, when we are sinners? So now, having seen the process working in Jesus, let's now turn to ourselves and the story of our lives as disciples. Right, where do we begin? We begin with this fact, that we must be taken. 
we must be taken by God. Now then, from our side of things, the way that we view things, this actually boils down to our surrendering to God and being born again. Uh, from our point of view, it boils down to a free will choice when we became Christians. Or to put it another way, as far as we're concerned, this is not being taken, we gave ourselves to God, didn't we? As a free will thing. What did we? Go to John 17. There are two sides of the coin here. Sure, we gave ourselves to the Lord. We gave our lives to him. Of course we did. But this process is that that which is going to be broken, it's not given, it's taken. It's taken by the one who's going to break it. Now, John 17, this is the prayer of Jesus. Now, we're going to read verse 1 and 2 first. Father, the hour has come. This is Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. The hour has come. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him power over all flesh to give eternal life to those you have given him. See? You didn't give yourself to Jesus. God gave you to Jesus. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men who you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me for they are yours. Now can you see the actual truth from God's point of view isn't that I gave myself to Jesus. No. The Father gave me to Jesus. I, I never gave myself to Jesus. The Father did it. Can you see? Because God took you first. The only reason you thought you gave yourself to Jesus, what you thought was you giving yourself to Jesus, was actually God giving you to Jesus. The Bible never says that people give themselves to God. The Bible never says that a Christian gives himself to Jesus. The Bible teaches that God gives you to Jesus. And how is it that God can give you to Jesus? Well, Jesus said, because they were yours anyway, Father. Because God had already taken us. So that's the truth of the matter. Not that we gave ourselves to Jesus, we didn't. Father gave us to Jesus because we were already his. God took us. So we, truly as Christians, are taken just like Jesus was. We were presented to the Father for being Christians. Go to John chapter 6. <coughs> John chapter 6, first of all, verse 35. <coughs> Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And him who comes to me I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now how come someone has believes and has eternal life? Because God has given them to Jesus. Go over into John 15, chapter 15. 
and verse 16. Look at this. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. You did not choose me. That's why I said earlier that no, nothing in the Bible to suggest that someone gives themselves to the Lord. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. So, there you have it. So, we're seeing that as with Jesus, we were taken. Right? Now then, the next thing. Jesus took the bread, he blessed the bread. And then we saw that Jesus was taken and Jesus was blessed. Now go to Ephesians 1.3. Because this must be the case with us. We're taken, i.e. we're born again, and then we're blessed. So what's this? Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Now look what Paul says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every blessing in the spiritual places. Is he? who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now why is that? It's for this reason. Because Jesus is in us. The every spiritual blessing that Paul is talking about here is, as he puts it in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Why? because Jesus is in us. Remember, me, myself, and I, and him, because he lives in me. All right. Now then, keep your finger in Ephesians, but go back to John 14. Because I know you were thinking that I read quite a few verses earlier, and you're thinking, why did I read them then? Well, now you're going to find out. All right, John 14. No loose ends allowed in this church. John chapter 14, and find verse 15 again. Remember, the blessing, or we've been blessed, what with? The life of Jesus, every spiritual blessing, alright? John 14, verse 15 and seven to 17, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and will be in you. Now verse 23. Jesus speaking again. If a man loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. My goodness. Here we have the Holy Spirit in us, Jesus in us, and Father in us. The Trinity lives in each one of us. Now go back into the Ephesians 1, chapter 3. Let's read it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What? Because God himself in his entirety is living inside of us. The Father is Jesus is and the Holy Spirit is. That is what happens when we're born again. Maybe, having read uh, verse 3, let's just read quickly verse 4 to 5. I don't want to go into this. I just want it to be there. Even, so he said, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, all right, in heavenly places, 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be homely and blameless before him. He destined us in love to be his sons. So there you have again the fact that we're taken. You know, nothing to do with us. God took us, all right? There's nothing in the Bible to suggest that in that situation, anyone ever says no, all right? But nevertheless, can you see that what we've got here is that we are blessed. We've been taken and then blessed. So then, forgiveness, etc., the whole gamut, you name it, and of course culminating in being filled with the Holy Spirit or being baptised with the Holy Spirit. Just go to Luke 24. Let's just quickly see the significance here of the being baptised with the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 24 and verse 29. This is Jesus <coughs> shortly before he ascended. It's after he rose again, before he ascended, telling them about the fact that they were going to be baptised with the Spirit. And uh, Luke 24 verse 49. He says, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now then, they were going to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was going to come down upon them in power. But Jesus here talks about that empowering as being clothed with power. Now, what's he talking about? Okay, now this is what happened to Jesus when the Holy Spirit came down upon him. It's what happened to us when we were baptised with the Spirit. It's a reference to what is known as the toga virilis. Now, this was very well known and understood in the then known world. It was a Roman thing and the Greeks designed very similar. And it was the point that when, you, when a father had a son, all right, what would happen was that as soon as that son reached the point of coming to maturity, in such a way that he could truly represent his father, be it in business or in family matters. So, as soon as the son, as soon as a father considered that his son had done his schooling, been prepared, grown up, passed the tests of childhood, as soon as the father was convinced that his son was truly mature, and could take on the responsibilities of his father, represent him in business, blah, 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 that father would then take him to the leaders or the elders of the local town. And there would then be a ceremony. And the ceremony was that the father would have a special robe or, you know, thing that he wore that symbolised his authority as the head of that family. He would take this robe and place it on the son. It was called the toga virilis the clothing of maturity. And when Jesus talks about you will be clothed from on high, what he's saying is, to receive the power of the Holy Spirit is God's confidence in you as his son. Alright? Now then, obviously, from one aspect, I mean, you're either a son of God or a daughter of God, because we're all children of God. But whether you're a bloke or a woman, we are all sons of God, because we all have that position of mature sons before him. So there's no sexism there at all. This applies to women, Christians, as well as it does to the men. And of course, when Jesus received the Holy Spirit as a dove, and the Father said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, you've got exactly the same thing. The Lord's saying, this man is blessed, all right? He is blessed of me. I have confidence in him as my son. And when we're baptised with the Spirit, receiving all these blessings, everything, that is God's vote of confidence in us, the toga virilis, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, 
or as the Bible refers to it, being blessed. Okay. So then, we've been taken, and we've been blessed. And within that blessing, you and I have within us everything that God has. There is no limit to that blessing. But here's the point. It is the truth that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. The very Trinity lives within us. That is the truth, and that is the potential. All that is in each believer, alright? That is the potential. The Trinity is in us. Jesus lives in us. So this brings us to the question, having been taken, having been blessed, so why brokenness? Why do we then need to be broken? Well, it's very, very simple. Because we are in the way. The potential inside cannot be realised because it doesn't come out because there's something in the way. And that something is us. So, we now have to move on to the fact that we need to be broken. Go back to Matthew 26. Matthew 26 and verse 30. <coughs> We're going to see here a touch of this process working in the disciples. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out from the Mount of Olives. This is their now, they've finished the Last Supper, and off they go. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter declared to him, Though they all fall away, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, This very night, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And look, and so said all the disciples. Now what's happening here? Well, you know what happened. What did they all do? They all deserted Jesus. And Peter did indeed deny Jesus that very night. Here we see the brokenness starting to work. Here we see <coughs> the bitter tasting of the disciples' Total sinfulness and faithlessness. Can you see? Can you imagine what they felt like by the time that night was ended? That when Jesus needed them most, and they were quite confident that they'd stick with him. Quite confident. It's called self-confidence. When the crunch came, they deserted him. And he meant more to them than anything else. Can you imagine what broken men they were as a result of that experience. Can you imagine how much they learnt about the true reality of themselves? Can you imagine how sick they felt at their great proclamations, well, die with you, Lord, we won't desert you, when they realised the stupidity of it all because they just didn't have it in them. They didn't have it in them. And they tasted their sinfulness and their faithfulness to the full. And the thing to remember is that the reason why God could do so much through these men when they were filled with the spirit of Pentecost 
was because they were so broken and emptied of themselves here. Think about it. You can only be filled with the Spirit to the extent you've been emptied of yourself. One of the reasons, if we're out and about, because Belinda and I believe in value for money, if we go somewhere and have a Coke or something, we always say, leave the ice out. Shall I tell you why? Because they pile so much ice in you, you're getting half a glass of Coke. You're getting half of what you've paid for. So we never have ice. It's ice cold anyway, but we don't have ice in it, and then you get twice as much Coke, don't you? Easy. You can only be as filled with the Spirit as you've been emptied of yourself. And this is what brokenness does. Go, go back into John 15 and verse 5. just want to see here a couple of things that, 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 that Jesus said. And believe me, it is one thing to believe this doctrinally. It is one thing to say, I believe it because the Bible says it. It's one thing to, to, to be in that scene. It is an entirely different thing to experience the truth of it and wholeheartedly agree with it. John 18 and verse, uh, sorry, John 15 and verse 5, what Jesus said? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, what a thing to say. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, yes, we believe it because Jesus says it, but do we really believe it? Well, no, because it's quite natural for us to do things apart from him. Even our Christian religious, charismatic thing it's natural for us to do apart from him. My goodness, apart from me you can do nothing. And it's brokenness that teaches us how true that actually is. So that you don't do things apart from him. Go back into chapter 6. Again, we've been in chapter 6, but a different verse. Chapter 6, this is still John, verse 63. Jesus said, it is the spirit that gives life, the flesh is of no avail. What Jesus is saying here, what I do through you is okay, what you do on your own, waste of time. Can you see? And it is brokenness that brings us to the point where this potential of Jesus living through us can begin to become a reality. Now, if you just be turning to Genesis 32, because obviously there is no way I can fail to bring old... Um, Jacob into this, so just be finding <coughs> Genesis chapter 32. Now, one of the interesting things um, in, in the Old Testament are the names of God. Uh, God's names are always tremendously significant. Um, now, one of his favourite names, I mean, I, I, when you introduce yourself to someone, you say, hi, I'm, I'm Beresford, I'm John, I'm James, or whatever, don't you? Well, I mean, when God introduces himself, you know, he, he, say, he, he calls himself by his name. So when he revealed himself to Moses, he says, Hi, Mo, I'm, I am. You know, can you see? Because that, that was, God's got hundreds of names, and the name he chooses on the occasion says something. And one of God's favourite names, i.e. when he spoke to people in the Old Testament and introduced himself, was this, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, why did he choose that name? What does it tell us about him? <coughs> well, it tells us something about God as a trinity, all right? Now, the God of Abraham. What is Abraham? Abraham was the father of faith because the covenant of faith was specified through Abraham. Abraham was the father of Israel because he was the first Jew, is he? And that the Jews called Abraham father 
Abraham. That was how the Jews referred to him at the time of Jesus. All right, they still do today. Father Abraham. Because Abraham initiated everything. Everything, as far as Israel was concerned, began through Abraham. So Abraham is the initiator. He is the father. He is the beginner of things. And, of course, he's a picture of God the Father. Because what we know from the Bible is that the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, he is the initiator. He's the one who does the deciding. He's the one who does the planning. He's the one who does the destining of everything. It's always God the Father. He is the planner and the architect. All right. Now then, right, the God of Abraham, representing God the Father. Now, Isaac. Now, Isaac, firstly, was Abraham's son. All right. And what's interesting, if you read through the story of Isaac, it has incredible parallels with the story of Abraham. And what you'll find is that Isaac never did anything except that Abraham had done it first. And if you go through the story of Isaac, you'll find that in that story, there's only one thing that Isaac ever did off his own back, all right? And he dug some wells. And if you then go back a few chapters, you'll find that what he was doing, he was digging up wells that Abraham had dug years before and had got filled in. So, Isaac, the name means child or son of promise. Isaac, his wife, was chosen by Abraham. Where he lived was chosen by Abraham. Isaac's life is a complete shadowing of Abraham's. In fact, there's a situation where Isaac told a lie about his wife to get out of trouble. Abraham had done exactly the same thing. Even Isaac's sins are the same as Abraham's. So what you've got is that Isaac copies Abraham in virtually every area. All right. So therefore, who is Isaac a picture of? Isaac is a picture of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Because Jesus said, I only do what I see my father doing. That's what Jesus said. And Isaac only did what his father said. Hardly any independent action at all, even sin. Isaac would only dare sin the same sins that his dad had. Now, obviously, the father never sinned and Jesus never sinned. But the point was, Isaac only did what Abraham had done. And Jesus said, I only do what I see my father doing. So Isaac is a picture of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. So we have the God of Abraham, Isaac, father and son. Now, where does Jacob come in? Well, Jacob's slightly different. Jacob is a picture, not of the Holy Spirit himself, but of the work of the Holy Spirit. All right. So Abraham represents God the Father. Isaac represents Jesus the Son. And in Jacob we have a representation of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see one of the major aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, all right? And it's, it's an aspect of his ministry that a lot of people on the Christian scene today do not say very much about at all, because they're too busy speaking in tongues and praying for healing, and all that has a place. But believe me, the Holy Spirit is concerned with far wider things than just that. So, Genesis chapter 32, let's just, uh, <coughs> we'll read verses 1 and 2, you know this story well, because it's one, of me, you know, one that I keep returning to. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. 
And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's army. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now, as you know, Mahanaim means the place of two armies. Jacob has a vision of God's army. He called it the place of two armies. What does that tell us? Well, Jacob was a man who thought, right, okay, God, you've got your army, you've got your power, you've got what you can do. I've got my army, I've got my power, I've got what I can do. Hey, Lord, why don't we get together? What a team we'd make. He was a man pooling resources with God. He was the exact opposite of, apart from me, you can do nothing. All right. So then, now we go on into verse 22. Now, what happens is here that he's on his way to meet Esau. Now, Esau, you'll remember, was none too happy with Jacob because Jacob had swindled him. Now, in actual fact, uh, Esau had forgiven Jacob. But Jacob didn't know that. He didn't know that. So here, he's in a situation. This is a believer. He's been a believer for 20 years at this point. Here's a believer whose past is about to catch up with him. All right? he's, he's heading on to face the full consequences of his sin. Now, let's start reading from verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. And Jacob was left alone. See, God all has to get you alone for brokenness. It's no use. Can't be propped up all over the place. Can you see what I mean? And a man wrestled with him till the breaking of day. Now, we know this man was, because later on Jacob said, I've seen God face to face. Yeah, I still live. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Notice that this man, who is Jesus, starts the fight, right? So, you know, sort of like, you know, it's Jacob minding his own business and, and, and suddenly God sets on him. Well, it, it happens, it happens, right? Now, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, now, look at this, here is Jesus wrestling with Jacob, but he didn't prevail. Jacob was resisting God for all he was worth. Jacob is trying to fight the Lord off, all right? So, when the man saw he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched the hollow of his thigh. Now, the hollow of the thigh is the strongest point of a man's body. A man generates more power from that muscle than any other muscle in his body, all right? So, at Jacob's strongest, strongest point, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and Jacob's thigh was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Broke his leg at the hip. <laughs> Charming, all right? Then he said, let me go for the day's breaking. Now, Jesus, having broken him, Jacob has been fighting him off. Jesus has broken him now. And Jesus said, let me go, all right? And now, but Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Can you see what this brokenness had, got, had done? Jacob goes from fighting God off, then he's broken, then he's hanging on for dear life. What a change. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because here, Jesus says, what is your name? Silly question. I mean, Jacob knew that the Lord knew his name. But Jacob said, Jacob. Now, I'll tell you why that is significant. The word Jacob means deceiver. And the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Here, having been broken, Jacob is at last honest about his true condition. Having been a... A follower of the law for 20 years, now deep repentance happens for the first time. He calls himself what he is, a sinner. And he means it, and he's come to terms with it. And then look, then the man said, your name shall no more be called Jacob, but Israel. And Israel means prince with God, or one who has strived with God. Can you see, Jacob's new life really began here. 
the full potential of the life that he got 20 years earlier now is starting to be released. Why? Because Jacob's been broken. <coughs> and what's interesting is, if you read down it, Jacob limps away. He limps away. This strong man, so capable. There's a lovely picture in Hebrews when it talks about Jacob at the end of his life, leaning on his staff. Leaning on his staff. Now the point was, his staff, the staff in the Bible represents faith and dependency on God and submission to God. Now the point is, Jacob up until now, I mean, you know, he, he used this staff when he needed it, but if he didn't, he, you know, he didn't need it. You see, sometimes he needed it, sometimes he didn't. Sometimes he needed God, sometimes he felt he could do all right on his own. But now he'd been broken, now he was limping for the rest of his life. He was leaning on the Lord for the rest of his life. Because he'd so been weakened and broken, he could no longer depend on himself. Are you getting the picture of what brokenness actually does? It makes us limp. It takes away our self-confidence, our self-reliance. It makes us realise that we can do nothing outside of the Lord. And the real thing that changed here in Jacob's life is that for 20 years it had been Jacob for the Lord. But now the reality had come through and it was the Lord through Jacob. Do you see the difference? The potential was now being released. Go to Psalm 51. Let's have a look at King David. He knew all about this. Psalm 51. <coughs> this was after David had been exposed when he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba and had a husband murdered. He was an adulterer and a murderer. And it starts off, have mercy on me, O God, according to thy steadfast love, and you know, blah, blah. I'm running out of time. Read it in its fullness when you get home, perhaps. But look at this. Let's start from, uh, from verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Fill me with joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. He says, create in me a clean heart and put a right and a new spirit within me. And then, if you go down to verse 17, the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. <coughs> Can you see, David was broken. An anointed prophet the chosen king of Israel, but he had to be broken. And here we're reading about when he's writing about the way in which God did it. So what exactly is this brokenness? It is tasting the full extent of our sinfulness and our depravity. It's experiencing personally what, when we get converted, we believe intellectually that we're sinners. Uh, go to Romans, Romans chapter 8. Look at what Paul says. Romans chapter 8. <coughs> and in... Um, and verse 24. No, it's not, sorry. Romans 7, um, verse 18. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. And then in verse 24, he said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
Can you see Paul knew the truth about himself? When he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, he says this, I am the foremost of sinners. Can you see Paul had experienced it? He was broken, he knew how sinful he was. And then secondly, it's knowing as well that only what Jesus does through us is of any value at all. That it is Jesus living through us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it is the continual surrender to him of our will. And uh, Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but yours be done. And brokenness results in a broken will that says, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. So there we have brokenness. But then, then we are given. Then, suddenly, we're enough. And we're enough because it's no longer us, it's Jesus living through us. It's Jesus living through us. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. It's Jesus coming through us. The truth is we can't love people. We can't live the Christian life. We cannot return good for evil. We don't have that in us. But Jesus is in us and he can do it. Patience, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit. That is not describing us. That is describing the life of Jesus. We can't be like that, <coughs> but Jesus can be like that in us. There's that chorus we sing, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Break me, melt me, mould me, fill me. That breaking. Without the breaking, what is in there will never come out. Now I want you to go back to Matthew 26 yet again. <coughs> Matthew 26. And we're going to read verse, start reading from verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. Now, verse 10. Jesus said, Why do you trouble the woman? What she has done is a beautiful thing to me. Verse 13. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So, what exactly is it that she has done here? Pouring this, this ointment on her body. Now, in Exodus 30, verse 25 and 32, I won't actually read it now, you'll find part of the Mosaic law in the setting aside of priests. And that the way they do it, an oil or an ointment was prepared that is poured on them. And it's a picture of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And in Psalm 133, you get the psalm about how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And it's, it's like oil on the beard of Aaron running down his, his feet. And what that psalm is talking about is that the oil or the ointment that was poured over the priest was a picture of the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon them. And so, finally, that oil, the ointment that is poured out on the priests as they're set aside for service, is a picture of Jesus himself, because Jesus is a great high priest. And when this woman 
poured this ointment over Jesus, she was acknowledging who he was. You see, she'd become a believer. And this was her way of recognising that here was the anointing oil of the Old Testament. Here was Messiah. Here was Jesus himself. Now, if we just go to Mark 14, we have Mark's account of the story of this woman. It's not in any way different, it's not contradictory, but the different accounts of the same events in different Gospels gives little details and you build up a picture. And in Mark 14 and verse 3, just notice she's come up to Jesus and she's poured oil over him. This oil was in an alabaster box. Now, in Mark chapter 14 and verse 3, look what we read. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at table, a woman came with an alabaster, alabaster jar of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the jar and poured it over his head. You see, for the oil and for the fragrance to come out of the alabaster box, the box had to first be broken. Because what was inside couldn't get out you had to break the box. Now, <coughs> alabaster, because this is what it was, you know, this box, is gypsum. And gypsum is from sedimentary rocks, alright? Now then, earthenware, or pottery, is clay from the same rocks. So what we've got here is an alabaster jar that needed to be broken in order for the ointment to come out, alright? And it's all, you know, like pottery earthenware pots. Now go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 <coughs> and verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumph and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. See the picture? We are the aroma of Jesus. This ointment had a beautiful smell, but it couldn't be smelt until the box had been broken. Go over onto chapter 4. And chapter 4 and verse 5, he says, For what we preach is not us, but Jesus Christ, with ourselves as your servant, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Jesus has shone in our lives. He's in us. Let him shine out. And he says, But we have this treasure, and the treasure is Jesus, in earthen vessels, and the earthen vessels is us. We are the alabaster boxes that contain the ointment, which is the life of Jesus himself. Question. How is the life of Jesus going to get out to the world? The earthenware pots, that's us, have to be broken. Only then is the life of Jesus revealed to the world. So can you see it? When we're broken, then we're given, because before it was us doing it for Jesus, and that didn't help anyone. That was sheer limitation, no needs met. But after brokenness, we're given to the world as channels out of which Jesus is pouring. And the limitation is gone, because it's no longer I, but Christ. The limitation of merely me in the flesh is gone, and Jesus is coming out. And what this tells us is that our hard hearts need melting. 
That's what brokenness is. Our, our stiff-necked wills need to be broken. Now, the question we must ask ourselves, are we willing to do this? We must each one say, Lord, humble us, that you can be exalted in us. Break us, Lord, so that you can come out. So the question is this. How do you feed thousands with a bit of bread and a few fish? Let Jesus break it. Question. How are we going to bring Jesus to those around us? Answer. Let God break us. How is the world going to get to see Jesus? By Jesus breaking his disciples. We'll end on Luke 24. Luke chapter 24. And this is the story when Jesus appears to some of the disciples after he had been raised from the dead. But these disciples didn't have a clue it was him. Verse 13, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened, i.e. the death of Jesus. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognising him. And he said to them, what is this conversation which you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus, who was a mighty prophet, in word and deed before God and the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, you see, because now they'd lost faith, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since this happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. And they came back saying that they even seen angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were there went to the tomb and they found it as the woman had said. But him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He appeared to be going further. But they constrained him, saying, Stay with us, it's towards evening and the day is far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Now, look, look at this. Look what happens now. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed the bread and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognised him. Can you see that? They saw him, but only after brokenness. And that's exactly how the world today is going to see Jesus in his church. When the disciples, those of us who make up the church, have been taken, blessed, well we have been, we're born again, we're baptised with the Spirit. But then there's brokenness. Only then can we be given. Only then is the alabaster box broken and Jesus pours out and then those around us start to see him. We'll finish there.